Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello and welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, it is so exciting to have with me here on the podcast, Renana Ashkenazi. Renana is general partner at Grove Ventures, an Israeli fund focused on early stage tech ventures with Israeli founders. Renana served as a technology officer in the military's elite intelligence unit, 8200, and has an incredibly diverse background with experience in and across product management, innovation, and strategic marketing. She holds a BSc from Tel Aviv University and an MSc from Northwestern University. University in Electrical Engineering and is a Kaufman Fellow from the class of 2020. Renana, welcome to the show. Great to have you here with me. Welcome. So far, all true. Amazing. So let's dive straight in. So I talk a lot about risk-taking and just giving things a shot, irrespective of the potential for failure. It's one of the reasons I launched this podcast. And I, I recall one of the conversations that you and I have had is one that I really loved. And it was a story of how you joined Northwestern University to study your master's. I, I'd really love it if you could share that story with our listeners. Yeah, sure. That was, uh, I don't remember how many years ago, but I had all those plans to apply to Northwestern. They had this very exciting program in the Faculty of Engineering that combined engineering uh, studies or an engineering master's with uh, working at uh, what was called the Center for Innovation and Global Health Technologies. And that sounded amazing to me. It sounded like doing good, doing well, engineering studies. I'm, I'm a geek. So, you know, that that was that had a great appeal. But I just really took my time with it. I was working full time. I was super busy. I thought I was a great fit for the program. So it doesn't really matter when I'll apply. I'll just get it. I was also pretty much used to getting what I want. So I did eventually apply, but I really took my time. I applied, I think it was two or three months after the application deadline. And I remember not even giving it a second thought. I just, and then a couple of weeks later, I, I received a letter from the university saying, Ms. Ashkenazi, thank you for applying. Unfortunately, a application deadline has passed and you're more than welcome to apply again next year, but well, no. <laughs> and, you know, that didn't really fit the plan, right? I mean, I had this plan. I knew what I wanted. My boyfriend at the time had applied to numerous business schools and wanted to go to Kellogg, which is the business school of uh, Northwestern. And so, you know, that was what we were going to do. And out of, I don't know, it was me being naive, me being arrogant, me being used to getting what I want. The first thing that I did was just sit down and write an email to the president of the university, to the dean, to the head of the faculty, to the head of the program. And I said, listen, I don't know. I think there might have been a mistake or there probably have been a mistake because I just got a rejection letter. and. That doesn't really sound right because I'm a perfect fit and clearly you need to fix something on your side. And, you know, you and I talked about it and I told you, I think that I don't know that today I would do that, but that's a different story of why and when do we feel arrogant, naive or courageous enough to do such things. But it took literally 24 hours before I got an email from the head of the program. And he said, listen, I'm in Africa, but give me a couple of days to figure this out. And then less than a week later, he said, well, I'm really sorry, but I'll need you to pay the application fee again so we can process your application again in the system. Don't worry, we'll refund you, of course. And I did. And then a couple of weeks later, I got this letter saying, you know, dear Miss Ashkenazi, we're happy to inform you that you've been accepted to the fall semester. So that was how I got into Northwestern. I think it's a tremendous story. You you talked about it in terms of arrogance, naivety, and, and courageousness. I, I think to borrow, I think it's a Yiddish term, right? To borrow a Yiddish term, chutzpah. Like to me, it's, it, it's that combination of backing yourself and taking a risk without actually knowing the consequences. I think a lot of people would probably have resigned themselves to, oh, well, I wasn't the right fit. I applied too late. It wasn't, you know, 
know, it, it wasn't meant to be. And I think one of the things that's really wonderful in today's day and age is that actually you'd be really surprised that if you put yourself out there, you take that risk and you just give something a shot. Yeah, okay, you, you may well get rejected, but you don't know that you're going to get rejected until you take that shot, right? So I think the moral of that story is it doesn't really matter why you try something, you should try it, right? Because if you have any chance of succeeding, that's better than not trying at all. So I, I actually, I really, I think that's a great story. It's one that I'm going to be telling my daughters well into the future, I'm sure. The other thing that I think is super interesting is, you know, over here, the na- national service has been phased out of many European countries, right? And it was ended in the UK in 1960, and the last servicemen were discharged by 1963. But in Israel, it still goes strong and seems to be almost universally praised by the people I know who have served. I'd really love to understand how your time in Unit 8200 and the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, informed your view on technology first and then also entrepreneurship. Because I think other people that I've spoken to that come from military backgrounds seem to have a, a, a great ability to slot into that world of entrepreneurship. And, and I, I'd love to understand more about why. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are a lot of different views I could share in mine. I think that my time in the military was extremely meaningful, very defining of who I am today. And it's a combination of A, being exposed to very advanced technology at a very young age, having a lack of a better word, I'm going to use a ton of responsibility on your shoulders and being exposed to situations that are not trivial at 18 because of their intensity, because of their importance, because of their impact on the lives of everyone living here. And I think that there are a lot of things you learn in such situations. I think that one of the things that that you see more than anything is people developing resilience just because the end goal is so important. You know, there are situations where you simply can't say, well, never mind, it doesn't work, so we'll just leave it. There is too much at stake. And, you know, that's the the good and the bad thing of living in such a complicated security situation as as we do here in Israel. Some of my best friends today are, are people who I serve with. Some of the most successful people I know in the ecosystem are people that I've served alongside or that I, you know, I knew during my service. And it's a great experience of, of independence, of, of discovering your boundaries, your limits. For me, it was, it was a very impactful experience. Presumably, you can't tell me much about the technology you guys were working on. I could, but I'll have to kill you. <laughs> I thought I thought you might say something like that. To be to be fair, I think the the thing the word that you said there that I think resonates again the most is resilience, right? And it's one of these things in entrepreneurship which is critical. It's the ability to to get back up. It's the ability to keep going in the face of adversity, but without sort of resigning yourself to that adversity, right? It's 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 about finding mechanisms both to cope with and to overcome that adversity as you're going through it. And I think you know at eight. 18, it's a lot to ask of a person, but I'm pretty sure it's it's one that it's a calling maybe that builds that strength and that depth of character early on. It's why I certainly recommend to, I mean, as, as my daughter did, but I, I certainly recommend to others gap years for university, you know, to go out and work not quite the same as as, as national service by any stretch of the imagination. But again, it, it gives you those tools to, to operate in the real world in a way that, you know, I think schools and universities are, are still struggling with, or in fact, are probably struggling more with as we've moved into kind of the fourth industrial era. So, I mean, thank you for sharing. I think that's really, really interesting and important to understand that kind of narrative and that background behind how service impacted your life yeah, uh, moving for, forward. For four years, you don't need to think in the morning, what are you going to wear, right? That's a lot of headache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've been wearing this same shirt probably for the last couple of weeks. So, <laughs> so I think I think maybe even without having served, I've learned that lesson as well. So, so 
you know, moving moving past national service, you led a team designing diagnostic devices that needed to function in really tough environments. So when you're designing hardware products, I mean, how does the process differ from software builds? You know, what were the idiosyncrasies that you had to overcome with these devices that I think you were building for deployment in Africa, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah. So it's actually, there are two parts of the question. I mean, there's there's one one answer relates to the difference between hardware and, hardware and software. And then the other is the differences between developing for you know the Western world versus Africa, which is what we were doing. And uh, let's start with the second part, because I spent most of my career at Applied Materials. Applied is, you know, the most high tech, high end environment that you could imagine. And all of a sudden I was working at the center and the target market was Africa. And when you're talking about developing hardware for Africa, then the considerations are so dramatically different because all of a sudden you need to think about, you know, the plastic from which the devices are in which the device is encapsulated, where it has to withstand 50 degrees Celsius because the clinic in Mozambique doesn't have air condition, right? And you can't really trust a highly professional team to operate the device. So the tech has to be very robust. It has to be very self-explanatory, right? It has to be a single push of a button and a result that is also very self-explanatory. The results have to be in real time and fast because you've already reached that distant village in Africa. You've already found that baby. You run the the test on him. You can't really send the results to a central lab and then get the results back in a few weeks and go find that baby again, right? So it has to be real time. It has to be fast. It has to be. You need to be able to trust the results. It has to look. Think about that. It has to look very low tech because if it's going to look like an iPhone, if it's going to look very advanced, then people are going to steal it. Ton of considerations that you just don't think about or are actually exactly the opposite when you're developing and designing for the Western world. So that's one thing. And when it comes to hardware versus software then again, a completely different set of considerations when it comes to reliability, when it comes to validation, when it comes to cost, when it comes to design. So that was a very uh, unique part of, 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 of my development experience. Yeah. So, I mean, I've spent a great deal of time in developing economies, both in Africa, as well as Papua New Guinea out in, in the Pacific. And I think the thing that we don't consider in the West often, because we're, we're very wrapped up in our own first world problems, as, as, as they're known, obviously, is how the smallest thing Things can make massive, massive differences in in these places. The you know the story or not the story, but the you know the example I love to give is whilst we in the UK were grappling with nicer websites for online banking in Africa, they went straight ahead to mobile banking. You had the development of M-Pace and similar sort of technologies because they saw the opportunity to get a huge swathe of the population that was unbanked banked into the formal sector and you know, able to participate in a way that they weren't able to before. I think what you said around things like getting the test results immediately having that lack of lag between taking the test getting the results and and delivering those results to the patient or the you know the patient's carer i think is massively important there's already mistrust and distrust of a lot of these sort of situations out there and therefore being able to show results in real time actually builds i think some of that trust because it doesn't look like you know something's happening behind the scenes and equally as you said you know just thinking about things like is it portable can it withstand the heat can it withstand the dust presumably right like is it encased in in materials that can do that. I think all of these things are just, you don't have to think about them as much, certainly when when you're sitting here, you know, in London or, or as you are in, in Israel. I mean, w- when you talked about the difference between tech and software, what one thing that you touched upon that I'd, I'd love to just understand a bit further is, so with software development, it's, I- I'm going to say much easier, and I'll probably cop a lot of flack for that, but it is easier, let's say, to develop a prototype.
prototype or a prototype or even an MVP or, or whatever, you know, whatever it is, that smallest kind of iteration to test the market. Is it similar with hardware or is it completely different? I mean, presumably from a design perspective, you can get you could get away with having something that isn't designed perfectly, but from a functionality perspective, presumably it has to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the catches, right? That if the iterations are just longer and often more expensive. Also, if you think about it, a lot of cost reductions that happened in the software development world. I mean, even just cloud serverless. A lot of the of the of the driving factors that have made software development so much easier are really lagging when it comes to hardware development. There are much less, I'd say, shortcuts. So cycles are often longer and often more expensive. And for a fund like Grow, that's really not afraid of investing in hardware. That's something that we integrate into our model. We know that often some of our companies will take longer to reach an MVP, longer to reach pilots, longer to reach revenues, and it will be more expensive. Yeah, I think that's really important to understand also from a deployment perspective. In fact, let, let's talk about growth, right? So it'd be great to understand a bit more about its history, its approach, the sort of ventures you look at and you know what stages you look at and what's most important for you when you're investing it. You know, especially if you're investing in hardware, presumably you have to look beyond just sort of is the market there and can the team execute, you know, you have to look at is the product viable? Is it robust? Is it technically sound in a way that again, with software, you can you can have sort of more rough edges. So what is it about the ventures that you back that you're looking for when you back them? But yeah, it'd be great to understand more about Grove in general. Well, I see Grove is one of my favorite topics to talk about Well, after me. And we have a, a very clear, I'd say, thesis. So Grove was established in 2017. We're now investing out of our third fund. So first fund was 110, then 120. Now we've just announced our third $185 million fund. And the thesis has always been that, you know, we live in a constantly changing world where technology innovations are really what's driving revolutions in, in every single aspect of our lives. If you think about the past decade alone, then the technology played a crucial role in completely transforming the way we, we communicate, we drive, we shop, we study, we consume our, our health services, we watch TV, and the way we fight global pandemics, right? And what we know for sure is that the coming decade will bring even more futuristic technologies that will change the world again. And so founders who build cutting-edge technologies will allow this rapid digitization process to happen. And if you're looking at the amount of digital devices around us, then this is only going to, I mean, the pace is only going to increase. We, we've identified three main trends that we believe will push forward most of the uh, digital transformation processes in the in the coming years. And the, the companies that we invest in are could place them in one of those three pillars. So one is, is edge computing, right? Laying the infrastructure for storage of, of solutions and applications close to the user. The amount of data that, you know, that's being collected from sensors and users is, is growing and growing. And accordingly, it becomes less relevant to rely on, on server farms to monitor, to control, to, to, to process those huge amounts of data. So we have quite a few uh, companies around, around edge computing, the infrastructure and the processors themselves. Cloud computing and data, and data uh, centers is something that we're looking at. The process of full migration to the cloud has significantly accelerated and, and the number of 
cloud services increase. So now that more applications and accessories are sitting at the edge, there is a growing need to control and monitor them remotely. That comes also with a need for smart shifts that's increasing and for, and for platforms that allow management of busy data centers. The last pillar is, of course, AI and automation. I always feel bad when I say AI because, you know, AI is everything now and, and there's nothing that's not AI. And I don't know when was the last time you saw a startup that doesn't have AI somewhere in its presentation or pitch. But it's true because if you think about, again, those pillars, then we're talking about how you mine the data. Okay, or, or the sensors and, and the edge, how you process that data, and then how you extract meaningful information out of that data. Yeah. So I won't pitch you projected.ai in that, in that <laughs> case, but yeah, no, but I mean, you're right. And the interesting thing is, I think even for those businesses, and, and again, projected, which is one of the businesses that I founded, does not have AI inherently in, in the business today, but we know it will in the future. And, you know, we are building towards that. And I think there is also a difference between, you know, machine learning versus true artificial in- intelligence you know, and, and artificial general intelligence, et cetera. So yes, there are lots of business that have examples of some element of AI or machine learning within them. But I think as we move forward, we will see more and more true AI or closer to true AI becoming embedded in these businesses. I think that the point around edge, edge computing is is super interesting. It's something that I've been thinking about recently because I'm, I'm a massive sort of fitness hacker, tracker kind of guy. And when I think about just the volume of data that I'm getting from the one device that I use and, and I'm looking at other devices as, as and and whether I'd use them as well. You have to think that at the moment those are being presented, you know, those are going back to the data farms, they're being processed, they're coming back, delivered to your device. And, and obviously there is some lag there. And there is there is a trade-off, I guess, between the amount of compute that you can deliver to the device at, at the front end to, to, to the user versus processing it through a, a, a data center. And one of the questions I, I think I've had is what is the what is the next platform? Because the reality is that I believe we're moving closer and closer to a place where where even cloud computing is for, for for deeper work, right? It's for heavier work. There will be more and more applications that are just being, you know, delivered via your device, but also processed on your device, right? But I guess part of that will come down to where we head with Moore's Law and whether we can we can get towards quantum computing and all of these other things that are massively exciting, but very, very difficult to, to, to know today. So no, I mean, th- those three pillars, I think, sound incredibly of the moment. And I guess the other thing with Grove is that it is an Israeli tech-focused fund. So what what is exciting about the Israeli eco- ecosystem at the moment, and like, where do you think it's heading? <laughs> what isn't exciting about the Israeli- yeah, big que- big question. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It, immediately after. 2020 set those new records in VC funding and deal flow and exits in Israel. I mean, all over the world, but in Israel, along came 2021 and boom, right? The old records are already old. But but the fundraising environment in Israel has never been better. I mean, we've seen Israeli startups raise, I think it was close to $20 billion in 2021, an increase that was like around 70 or 70 something percent over the total amount that was raised the year before that. That made 2021 the best year ever for tech fund fundraising in, in Israel. And that's, you know, in any matrix that you could think about. There were 30-something, more than 35, less than 40, I don't remember, but 30-something new unicorns announced in 2021. And Israel was ranked second to the US for new unicorns created in 2021. Israel has more unicorns today than all of Europe combined. That's that's a lot. And it's funny because we talk about it now and we're like, do you remember what we used to call unicorns unicorns? Because they were rare. So maybe it's time to think about yeah, maybe need to change the change exactly. the terminology a little bit for sure. So, so Israel, you know, has seen a pretty successful 2021, and I think that 
So, so okay, those are the numbers. But if you think about what's happening in Israel, then I think what's interesting to see is that Israel is considered the startup nation for a very long time. And it was because a lot of very successful tech companies were seeded in Israel. But then eventually what happened was that they'd be acquired at a relatively early stage for a relatively large amount. But now you see more and more companies becoming more mature, IPOing, going public, acquiring companies by themselves. And we call it the transition to the to the scale-up nation, right? Where a lot of expertise that are not only related to building an early stage company, building good technology, but also scaling up the company, not from zero to one, but from one to X and beyond. That's changing the entire ecosystem because a lot of new positions are now open, senior executive positions, not only in, in development, but also in marketing and sales and business. And by the way, COVID has contributed to that as well, because you could do a lot of things remotely. You don't need to move to the US. You don't need to re- to relocate or to to hire your sales team on the grounds in the, in the US where, the, where most of the market of the Israeli companies is. And so that is a change that we see in, in the Israeli ecosystem. I don't know how 2022 is going to look like. I mean, I read an article today about how much Israeli uh, startups have raised in the first month, but with everything going on in the markets, I don't know. And also if there's one thing that COVID taught us is that don't predict, but it's uh, it's interesting what's happening. Yeah, I get really scared when people tell me not to predict, given I'm I'm trying to build a prediction business. But yeah, <laughs> look, I, I I I completely agree. And I think the it's interesting that transition from startup nation to scale up nation is a great way of encapsulating you know what's happening. I think the other thing that is almost certainly happening as a result of all, all of those things that you just talked about is as founders and employees of existing Israeli unicorns, especially in those that exit, start getting some liquidity, they can reinvest back into the ecosystem and that in itself i think propagates and 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 pushes forward and we're, we're certainly seeing that a little bit more here in the uk and there's some very active kind of angels who you know well known for the exits that they've had and even angels that that aren't necessarily well known for the exits that they've had but have certainly exited you know i think they understand the need to attract great talent they understand you know where their where their investment dollars can flow in order to have the best outcomes so i think that's super exciting and and i, I would I, I mean i'm certainly very much looking at Israel, both in terms of the the technologies that are coming out, because I think there's some some very interesting technologies that are coming out of Israel that, to an extent, are slightly under the radar. Right? I think there is there has often been quite a narrow focus on some really interesting but quite niche technologies, and as those you know, very much in sort of health tech and and you know certainly in defense tech for sure. For, for anyone you know, for any founder that was looking to build across the three pillars that you talked about, so edge computing, cloud and data centers, AI automation, what what advice would you give them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I have a specific advice for those pillars. I would say that when you're building an early stage company, then the first or probably the most important thing that you want to make sure that you do. I'm sorry if this is going to sound very, very obvious, but it's the first thing that I look for is is validation, right? And specifically in those areas, because again, they're probably more difficult to iterate and the cost of a mistake is often higher. It's not enough to build a solution that you think is necessary, okay? Some of the best founders that we meet are founders that are building something to solve a problem that they've dealt with. That's also the problem of those founders because they look at the problem and the solution through a relatively narrow lens of their own experience. And you want to make sure that when you're going after building something big, you validate your market and it 
you validate it again, and then you go and you validate it again. You want to make sure the problem is experienced by others the way you've experienced and that the alternative solutions are the ones that you, that you were familiar with and that your solution will answer a broad population of potential uh, customers and not only you specifically in, in the position that you've held. And, and so, again, I always hate giving this answer because it feels very, very obvious, but it's really my number one tip. Don't go pitch investors before you have a really good slide of market validation that ideally will include a lot of lines with who you spoke with or alternatively the profile of who you spoke with. And what did he say about how he's experiencing the problem, how he's experiencing or how he's dealing with it today, how he's experiencing alternatives and competition? How much will he pay? for a solution. I mean, how much is a solution worth? And by the way, there are ways to ask those questions because if you're going to ask someone, how much would you pay? Then he'd probably say, I don't know, or I can't tell you. But if you say, we spoke to several other customers and they said that they pay somewhere along the lines of, I don't know, 10K to 20K a year, does that sound reasonable? Then you might get an answer. <laughs> yeah, the, I think Kaufman Fellows must be teaching that spell check one. I think Chris Chris Smith, who, who who introduced us, mentioned that as well. But I but it is one of those things. Attention to detail is massively critical. The 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 old Steve Blank adage, get out of the you know get out of the building, talk to customers, is clearly one that everyone needs to pay attention to. I was talking to a founder very recently. Well, actually, he's, he's a founder and now an investor, and you know he's a massive fan of prototyping. I.e., forget even your MVP, but what is what is that question set that you can go out there and validate your, you know, validate your premise with. And it's a really hard one, I think, for a lot of people who are sector experts, let's call them, or, you know, come from the the, the background to your point, you know, where where the, the solution that they're building is is to a problem that they themselves experience. There is this bias towards their own experience and and to therefore knowing the solution. In fact, you know, I, I've worked a fair amount with ed tech businesses and I've always found that the best ed tech businesses are the ones that are founded by people who don't have any involvement within the education sector or didn't come into it with involvement in the education sector because they come with a different set of thinking and ideas and they don't you know they don't see the problems in the same way. Renana, it's been absolutely lovely speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. you've given up a huge amount of your time to be with us. For our listeners, where can they find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? Where's the best place for them to come well, looking for you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on Twitter. They can find me on Facebook, Instagram, our offices in Tel Aviv. I'm <laughs> pretty much out there. Amazing. Renana, thank Thank you so much. It's been great speaking to you. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes. And thanks again for your support.